If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 22 this morning. Luke chapter 22. A few weeks ago, I said that though all of God's Word is holy and true, when we look at the passage of Christ at the Last Supper, it was easy to feel as if we were in a place that was holier than others. And if that was true, then this morning we are quickly coming into the very holy of holies of God's Word. As we continue to make our way through the gospel according to Luke, we are now in the final hours of Thursday evening and the early hours of Friday morning. Friday that we now refer to as Good Friday, the day that Christ offered his life on the cross. And so we see here Jesus spending the night in prayer before he goes to that cross. And as we look at this passage before us, the first thing that should stand out to us, I think, is that we are seeing something of Jesus' prayer life. Jesus was no stranger to prayer. It was his custom to regularly spend time with his Father in prayer. But perhaps we move too quickly past the thought of what that is, of what is really taking place there, of what is happening when Jesus prays. Consider that the Bible says the one true and living God is only one God, and yet that one God has existed eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and that they have always enjoyed fellowship together. And then in the smallest of moments, one person of that triune Godhead, the Son, became human flesh in embryonic form. He grew in the womb of a human mother, was born and lived among his creation. Now the Son, both fully divine in every way, yet also fully human in every way, is praying as a man to his Father. It is a small glimpse into the astounding realities of the Incarnation and the Trinity. And in Gethsemane we have this moment not just of Jesus praying, but certainly that, we have this moment of such theological and spiritual weight that it is rarely equaled, let alone surpassed in all the history of redemption. We have in the soul of Christ before us spiritual combat of the highest order. We are able to see into the very depths of Jesus' soul as he calls out to his Father, to our Father, with great agony. We see in him a life or death struggle where the salvation of the human race hangs in the balance. We see nothing less than the Savior readying himself for the cross. And for Jesus, that means that there is now no turning back. There is no escape. There is no way forward without suffering and death. But the full weight of what that death will mean for him should become reality for us as we see him struggle, even be tempted not to go through with that death. Begin at verse 39, Luke says, Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing... Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Such is the word of God. May he bless its reading this morning. Evangelist, theologian, and New Testament scholar D.A. Carson says of this passage, as Jesus' death was unique, so also was his anguish. And our best response to it is hushed worship. That's our primary aim this morning as we work our way through this text. As we see Jesus in the garden, my goal is that we walk away more clearly seeing just how utterly dependent we are on Him to be our Savior. We should see the depth of despair and temptation He endured, and this morning we should come as close as we can to Him in Gethsemane so that we can leave with a deeper sense of awe and affection for Him as our Savior. And so we begin by considering the desperate prayer of our Savior, the desperate prayer of our Savior. At this point in the evening, Jesus and his disciples have celebrated the Passover meal. We're not told here, but we know from the other Gospels that Jesus has already left the company of the others when they presume that he has gone out to distribute money to the poor, while we know that he is actually going out to betray Jesus. It's late in the evening, perhaps even midnight, and the eleven depart from the upper room with Jesus. We're told that he came out from that place and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. We've already seen back in chapter 21 that all this week during the Passover celebration, Jesus has gone out to spend the night in prayer in this same place. We don't know if they slept among the stars or if there was another home nearby in which he stayed, but either way, before Before the night was done, he was in prayer on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane, as it is called in Matthew 26. And Luke says here that when he came to that place, that is when he came to Gethsemane, he said to his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus exhorts them to pray, to pray. Why? That they might not enter into temptation. And he exhorts them to do that because that is precisely what Jesus does himself. He devotes himself to prayer that he also might not enter into temptation. Jesus knows what's coming. He's told his disciples what is coming. He told them that they would be tempted to flee his presence that night as the authorities came in to arrest him. And now that that hour is almost upon them, Jesus says that they need to be prepared. They need to be preparing themselves for that temptation, specifically by praying for help. Why? Why would he give them that? Of all the things to tell them to do, why would he tell them to pray that they might not enter into temptation? Again, that's because that's what Jesus does. That's how Jesus fights off temptation to disobey his Father. In that regard, this passage, more than many others, should drive home to us the fact that though fully God, Jesus was also fully man. That the temptations he faced were on a level that were similar to ours, but far deeper than ours. They were real temptations for him. Luke says that Jesus said to the apostles, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. 
Now, for most of us here, that might seem completely normal. Most of us, at one time or another, whether in the context of our home or a church or somewhere else, have knelt down and prayed. But you have to understand that for Jesus, this was anything but normal. The Jewish practice in his day was not to kneel, was not to be anywhere other than standing on your feet, arms outstretched, eyes open towards heaven when you prayed. But Jesus doesn't stand to pray. In fact, he cannot stand to pray. Here Luke says that he kneels down. The other gospels complete the picture. He not just kneels down, but then he lays down, prostrates himself before God with his face to the ground because his soul was sorrowful, Matthew says, even unto death. What what made Jesus so desperate in prayer before God? That's the question that we need to ask. We need to say, why is Jesus in this moment so sorrowful that he feels like he could die from the sorrow that he feels? That leads him to such desperation before God, even in the physical pose of his prayer. Given what we know is going to happen in just a few hours, some have supposed that it's simply the fact that he's going to die that has Jesus so sorrowful. Throughout church history, Certain Christians have died for their faith, and they have died, some at least, courageously. They have looked death in the face and almost smiled because they know that what awaits them on the other side is nothing less than the joy of the presence of God. And Jesus' sorrow seems quite a stark contrast to that. In fact, this was the cause of a major criticism of early Christianity. In the second century, a Greek philosopher named Celsus asked how one who was supposedly divine could mourn and lament and pray to escape the fear of death. If Jesus is merely afraid of death, then Celsus and many others who have leveled the same criticism have a valid point. But perhaps Jesus appears to have less confidence than even some of his disciples in the face of death because we misunderstand what he's actually praying about, what he's actually anticipating this night in the Garden of Gethsemane. If we assume that Jesus is here only afraid of death, then we make a bad assumption, a wrong assumption. Instead, what we see from this passage is that the reason Jesus is so desperate before God in prayer is not merely death but the terrifying cup of our Savior that he is about to take up. This is the second thing that we see this morning, the terrifying cup of our Savior. After Jesus tells his disciples to to pray with him, we're told that he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. This is the source of Christ's burden. This is the source of his sorrow. This cup that is put before him that he is expected to take up. What is that cup? What what, what has Jesus so upset? It's nothing less than death under God's wrath. Say, how do we know that? How do we know that that's what Jesus is thinking about? Because everything Jesus says and does is informed by Scripture. It's informed by the Old Testament. And we go back to the Old Testament, we look at that imagery of the cup. What we see is that the cup was a metaphor for one's lot in life. Sometimes that lot was a good lot. David could say that his cup runneth over. That the blessings that God was heaping upon him were overflowing in his life. But more often than not, more more regularly we see that the, that the imagery, the metaphor of the cup for one's lot in life was a cup of wrath under God's just judgment. 
So in Psalm 11, the psalmist says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. And that he will rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. While in exile, Israel mistakenly believed that God needed to be woken up to see their plight. But Isaiah says, no, Israel, no. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. He says, you've experienced this because you are the ones who have been asleep and therefore have been forced to drink down the dregs of the cup of God's wrath. At the same time, those nations who assaulted Israel were not innocent. They were just a tool in the hand of God and they would receive their own judgment. So Jeremiah says, thus the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. This is the imagery of the cup. This is the cup that Jesus has in mind as he is sorrowful in his soul, even unto death, as he calls out to his Father in prayer. He is known from the beginning, even before he came into this world, that this would be his cup. This would be the cup that is before him, that would be handed to him by his own Father, that he was called upon to take and to drink down to the very bottom. And from the time of his temptation in the wilderness and the outset of his ministry, Satan has tempted Jesus on this very point. To be the Savior without suffering. To be the Messiah without the atoning work. To somehow lead and reign and be the Savior the people need, but to do so in a way that was an easy life. A different kind of cup. One that overflowed rather than entertain judgment. And now the cross is imminent. And the cross is not just about pain. The cross is not just about suffering. The cross is about enduring and satisfying God's wrath. Most of us would recoil at the thought of willingly picking up some venomous snake that was coiled and ready to attack. We would, we, would, we would stop and pull back from picking up some large incendiary device that we knew was about to explode at any moment or to take up some vial of poisonous toxin that the mere drop of contact on our skin or in our, in our nose would cause immediate death. Even if we knew some good would come of it, when faced with that situation, we would stop, we would hesitate, we would begin to pull back at the thought of doing those things. Every instinct within us would say, preserve yourself. But Jesus is contemplating something far, far worse than any of those things. Far, far worse than anything we can imagine. Just over 12 hours from now, Jesus will hang on the cross as the propitiating sacrifice for the sins of the world. He will feel what he has never felt before. Again, we, we, we're, we're plunged into the depth of the mystery of the incarnation and the triune God as we consider that Jesus for all eternity, contemplate this if you can, for all eternity, the Son has been the supreme object of the Father's love. 
And now the Son is about to become the supreme object of the Father's wrath. For all eternity, there has been blissful harmony between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. In in the truest sense of the word, they have lived heaven forever. But now Jesus is no longer going to experience that heaven. He will now experience hell. And not for anything that he has done. But rather, he will experience that because of what we have done. Jesus will endure the unrelenting judgment of God because of the sin of others. The cup that is presented to Christ is not his cup. It is our cup. It is the cup that should be given to every one of us to drink down and suffer under God's judgment, but instead it is given to Christ. And so out of the anguish of his humanity, he calls out, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. The agony of his experience is beyond comprehension. We might be able to intellectually understand what is happening. That's what we're trying to do this morning, to to, to get as close as we can to to grasping what is going on in the mind and the heart and the soul of Jesus. But there's no way that we can fully relate to what he's going through because there's no parallel temptation that we will ever struggle with. In no small measure, that is due to the very composition of Christ's two natures. So John MacArthur, I think, is surely right when he says, we cannot comprehend the depth of Jesus' agony because as sinless and holy God incarnate, he was able to perceive the horror of sin in a way that we cannot. So often, let's just be honest, so often we so quickly embrace sin, we are hardly aware of being tempted by it. We we, we, we go for hours and for days and for weeks and suddenly it occurs to us. We've been consumed in sin. There's been no battle. There's been no fight. There's been no second guess. I'm being tempted. Should I give in? And just not there. We just so quickly reach in. And that is the exact opposite of Jesus' entire life. It's been one of absolute and total purity. So now as Jesus considers the cup of God's wrath, the very core of his being is recoiling in absolute revulsion of being so associated with sin. Christ is horrified of the cross, not because of the pain, not because of the physicality of the nails piercing his flesh or the mockery that will come to him, the, the beating and the abuse, the public nakedness of shame. That's nothing. That's not the horror of the cross for Christ. It is that he will be counted as sin. One who was utterly and completely holy. And so he prays out of the anguish of his soul. Perhaps remembering when the ram was given to Abraham that Isaac might go free. Father, if you are willing in some way imaginable, Remove this cup from me. And from that prayer, we not only see this terrible cup, but we also see the agonizing obedience of our Savior. The agonizing obedience of our Savior. Jesus not only prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup. He also prays, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Let those words 
sink in and rest on you for a moment. Meditate on the content as well as the, the mindset of that prayer, both in his shudder at the contemplation of the cup and in his resolve here to take it up. Jesus appeals to the will of the Father. So be clear on this. Jesus is not against the will of God here. Jesus is God. He, he, he cannot be against his own nature and against his own will. Jesus will not consider not taking up the cup unless the Father wills that he not take up the cup. Remember what Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew, don't you think I can call down 10,000 angels and the Father will send them to rescue me from this? In John he says, I have the authority to lay down my life as well as to take it up again. Jesus is concerned more than anything with the will of his Father. And so that's why he says, if you are willing, remove this cup. But if you were not, then I will drink. I will drink. Think about what is required in the soul of a man to stand like Christ, holding in your hands that awful cup and being able to say, not my will, but yours be done. Not what I want, but what you want. It is nothing less than a full, confident, absolute trust in God. Think about how quick and fickle we are to receive the, the slightest hardship, the smallest difficulty, and think to ourselves, or even called in prayer, God, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know that I can trust you anymore. And here is Jesus staring into the abyss of his perfect judgment against sin, about to, to bear that for people like us who do not deserve it, to experience the worst possible pain imaginable and still trust God, still call out to him as father, still see the goodness and the love in God. Do not read this passage and think that Jesus somehow lost his confidence in God because he prayed, if it be your will, let this cup be removed from me. Quite the contrary. Jesus can pray, I don't want this. Father, there's any other way. If you are willing, remove this cup. But he always comes back to, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. About 35 years after Jesus utters this prayer in Gethsemane, the author of Hebrews will write, and he will say about Jesus, in the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Now, in some ways, Hebrews is reflected on the entirety of Jesus' life, and yet there is a unique way in which I think he has, and it applies, he has in his mind the application of it to the garden. Because here, more than anywhere else, did Jesus call out to God in prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears. But listen again to what Hebrews says. Jesus offered up prayers with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard. He was heard, meaning God responded to the prayer. God answered his prayer. But Jesus dies. So in what way was he heard by the one who was able to save him from death and yet still die? It means, I think, that 
Just as God promised in Psalm 16, though Jesus would experience the fullness of death for his people, he would not leave his Holy One to see corruption. The Father will not leave his Son to languish in death. He will, and he did, raise him on the third day. And Hebrews tells us why. Because of his reverence. Remember what uh, what Paul says in Philippians 2? Jesus was raised, Jesus was exalted because he had been a faithful son. Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above all names. Likewise, Hebrews says Jesus was heard because of his reverence. Jesus revered God. It's a word that means the fear of God. Jesus so revered God, even to the point of embracing that dreadful cup of wrath, offering his life as sin for the sake of humanity, that God loved and responded to his obedience by not allowing him to remain in death, but by raising him back to life. Moreover, God helped him to obey the taking up of that cup. God helped him to move past the temptation to the cross. Jesus kneels down and he cries out to God in prayer. And what is the response? When when he is heard by God, what, what, what is the answer? Verse 43, there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Strengthening him for what? Strengthening him to take up the cup, to go to the cross, to be the obedient son that the Father has called him to be in saving humanity. If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And the father dispatches an angel to strengthen his son. What what, what is that? I have no idea, but here's what I think it is. Angels, the very word means messenger. And so I think that God dispatches this heavenly messenger to his son to say something like this. Thus says the Lord God, your heavenly father, remember what I have set you to do. Remember the promises laid down from before eternity spoken by the prophets. You will be the savior of the world and it will be through the cross. The cup will not be removed. I will not will it, but do not fear. I am with you. I am with you and you will succeed. And Luke says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Just as Isaiah predicted, I think, so much so here in Isaiah 53, out of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. I think Jesus was able to see afresh the results of his obedience and was satisfied with obeying the Father's will. And so he prays now, he prays more earnestly. What does he pray? Thy will be done. Thy will be done. Jesus will obey, but that path to obedience wasn't easy. Luke says, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And many have taken these words to mean that as Jesus sweat in the agony of prayer, that blood actually mingled in and dripped from his pores. And we know from science that during times of extreme duress on rare occasion, the human body can actually undergo this hematohydrosis process where tiny capillaries can rupture in the sweat glands, giving a, a reddish appearance to the perspiration that comes. And that might be exactly what's happening here. 
But notice what Luke says. His sweat became like great drops of blood. That sounds much more like the language of simile than a medical condition. It seems like Luke is saying that Jesus wasn't just sweating little beads of perspiration all over his body, but that such was the stress of his prayer and the, 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 the sorrow of his soul that sweat poured off of him, dripping down like blood would from an open womb. Now, is there anything at stake in how you interpret these words? Absolutely nothing. The garden is not the cross. He's not making atonement here. He is not a better Savior nor a lesser Savior, depending on whether or not he sweat blood or he sweat like blood. Either way, the point that Luke is making is the extreme duress that Jesus felt at this moment as he looks forward to taking up the cup of God's wrath on the cross. Jesus obeyed, and that obedience was not an easy thing. So when we read passages like Hebrews 12, which tell us it was for the joy that was set before him, that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, do not think joy, easy, simple, light. Jesus was not whistling a hymn on his way to the cross. This is not some kind of light-hearted happiness, but a sober joy in the midst of pain and sorrow. It is a faith-filled determination of a son that Hebrews 5 goes on to say, learned obedience through suffering. So think of Jesus being joyful because he believed the promises of his father as he walks away from the garden shaken but victorious on his way to the cross. As D.A. Carson so eloquently says, in the first garden, not your will but mine changed paradise to desert and brought man from Eden to Gethsemane. Now, not my will but yours brings anguish to the man who prays it but transforms the desert into the kingdom and brings man from Gethsemane to the gates of glory. This is why Jesus prayed in agony and blood, readying himself to take up that terrible cup, prepared to drain it down to the last drop of its vile dregs. Because taking up that cup on the cross would bring redemption to the children of wrath and glory to the God who saves. And it's only when we see that clearly will we all be able to also see the need to follow our Savior. The need to follow our Savior. Of course, the center of Luke's gospel is Jesus himself. The explanation of the glory of his person and work as the Savior of the world. But remember, one of the key themes that follows on after that is not just Christ who saves, but the disciples who receive that salvation and follow him. Luke wants his readers to understand not just Jesus, but how we are to live after we trust in Jesus. Luke wants to show what a faithful disciple looks like. So he shapes this account of these events. Not that he's adding or uh, he's changing things, but he's leaving certain things out that we pick up in Matthew and Mark and John because he has a specific aim in how he tells this. His aim is this, that the last thing we read is that when Jesus rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
Luke has shown us the unfathomable glory of Christ as he now willingly takes up the cup of God's wrath and he now leaves us looking at the disciples forcing us to ask, what about us? What about us? The disciples were sleeping for sorrow. That's a far cry from the picture that we usually have of mere lazy disciples who don't know what's going on, who could care less that Jesus is suffering. I think that Luke tells us it's just the opposite. That yes, they've misunderstood things. Yes, they've been thick, but they've just been through this long, tense-filled night that we've only got a small glimpse of through Luke. But you go and you read the Gospel of John and it's chapter after chapter after chapter of Jesus not only celebrating that Passover meal and transforming to the Lord's Supper, but of teaching about what is to come, about why he will suffer and die, about what they ought to accomplish after his resurrection, about the, the, the way in which they should live and preach for the glory of his name and remain connected to the Father through him. There's been the the sober warning that one of them is about to betray. And when, and when he says, Peter says, not, not me, not me, he says, all of you, all of you will scatter before the night's end, especially you, Peter. You will verbally deny me three times before the rooster crows in the morning. And so I think that what we understand is that though prayer is what brings us through spiritual battles, sometimes prayer itself is the battle. Think of all the reasons and the ways in which we grow prayerless because of overconfidence. Like Peter in the upper room just hours before insisting, I'll never forsake you, Jesus. I'll never deny you. He sincerely believed that he would be faithful, whether in following Christ to prison or death. But Jesus says, you're not going to last the night. How many times have we fallen into sin? Because in our arrogance, we've convinced ourselves some sin is beyond us. There's no way I would give in to that. And so... We do not rise and pray, but become prayerless and fall into temptation. Jesus, Jesus warns us to rise and pray and not be sleeping spiritually that we may not enter into temptation. Perhaps more often though, we grow prayerless because we cannot bear to face the difficulties in our life. We grow weary at the onslaught of temptation, maybe even the same temptation, hour after hour, day after day. We just want a way of escape. And sometimes that's actual sleep. We just go to sleep, whether it's at night or in the middle of the day. We just want to have a release from the spiritual pressures that are upon us. I think that's what's happening with the disciples here. But that's not a permanent solution. Whenever we wake up, those troubles and temptations are still there for us in the morning. And so Jesus says to them as well as to us, rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Do not misunderstand the exhortation here. Jesus does not command that we rise and pray because we are called to suffer with Jesus for our salvation. That we are to be with him in the midst of this. No, Christ alone uniquely suffered and bled and died to bring us to God. Nothing we will ever do will add to that work. Christ saves and Christ alone. And what he did on the cross by itself is effective for our salvation. At the same time, our fight against sin through prayer doesn't earn salvation, but our fight against sin through prayer flows from our salvation. So our victory in temptation is rooted in Jesus' own victory 
in Gethsemane. And our loss in temptation is covered by his victory. So that when, like the disciples, we fail to rise and pray, and therefore we give in to temptation and we sin, the blood of Christ still covers and forgives. Jesus exhorts us to rise and pray because he cares for us. Jesus encourages us to rise and pray because it is through prayer that we receive help from God, the help that we need. It is through prayer that we exercise our faith and our confidence that God is not just God. He is our Father who wants to give good gifts, who wants to give encouragement and graces that we might resist temptation and be holy even as His Son is holy. Whether in long-term marriages or simply on third dates, this Valentine's weekend have, has provided the opportunity for many to gush about the love that they have for someone in their life. But... When we compare even the best, the truest, most devoted love between two people in this life, it it is as merely a drop of rain compared to the ocean of love between the Father and the Son. It was such infinite love that led the Son into this world, obeying His Father's command. It was such love that also caused the Son to look on with dread at that cup that would turn the love of the Father to wrath. But it was also such love that caused the Son to rise and faithfully embrace the Father's will, drinking that cup that should have been ours. Such love in God and such love for sinners should lead us to awe-filled worship and in worship to humble faith and obedience like Jesus. Father, as we consider the, the anguish of the soul of Christ in Gethsemane, feel like Spurgeon who said that no preacher is fit for the task of getting to the fullness of the truth of what took place in that garden. No one can fully convey the the sorrow that Jesus felt, the, the inward turmoil of one who has forever been holy. It would now be so associated with sin that he would suffer his father's wrath for it. But Father, I pray that in the the glimpse that we have had, that it would bring sobriety to our own souls, that it would cause us to reflect more deeply on our Savior and the fact that though he was God, though he came into this world holy and he left this world holy, never once defying your will, but always displaying faithfulness to you. We might see that was no easy task. The temptations that he endured, even this final one, were real as they are to us, even more real for him. And Father, in seeing this faithfulness, in seeing this conflict within Him and yet His victory in temptation, Father, it would cause us to love Him all the more, to trust Him all the more, and like Him, to trust and love You all the more. 
Father, that we pray that this morning we would not simply, though certainly begin with, worship of you and your Son by your Spirit. But then just as Jesus commanded that we would rise and pray, that we likewise would not enter into temptation. We ask this in Jesus' name.